Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world of the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about a new global public opinion poll which has formed the basis of a major new report which we have just published at ECFR. It's called United West Divided from the Rest. Global Public Opinion One Year into Russia's War on Ukraine. This project is a result of a cooperation with the Europe and in the Changing World uh, project at Oxford University. And I'm thrilled to have my two co-authors of the report with me to discuss it and make sense of where global public opinion is one year into the war. So Timothy Garton-Ash, first up, he is a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford. He is an author of a number of best-selling books, including most recently Homelands, and is also one of the founding members of ECFR. And another founding member of ECFR, Ivan Krastev, is our third co-author. He is the chair of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia, permanent fellow at the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna, and is also a member of the Open Society Foundation's Global Advisory Board, Tim, Ivan, thank you very much for, for joining. Just to set this up, the, the top line finding is contained in the title of the thing. We found a year into the war that the West is far more united than many people feared it was going to be at the beginning. A lot of the nightmare scenarios about the West falling apart don't seem to have realised in some ways, in fact, not only has West come together more, but it's been radicalised and is stronger in support of Ukraine, stronger in opposition to Russia. However, at exactly the same moment, our poll shows that the rest of the world seems to be even less persuaded by these Western propositions about the centrality of, of, of Ukraine and the need to follow Western sanctions on Ukraine than they have been before. And our poll is really looking at the extent to which These two trends are related to each other and to try and explore them, both by polling 10 European countries, as well as the countries which the University of Oxford calls citrus, China, India, Turkey, Russia and the United States of America. So we're going to look at a lot of the really fascinating findings in our discussion uh, going forward, but we're probably going to divide it mainly in these two parts. Firstly, looking at what's happened to Western public opinion and then trying to understand what we see is a growing gulf between the ways that people are both thinking about the war, but actually thinking about the world between the West and the rest. So, Tim, you've just come back from Ukraine. You've been a very active part of actually forging this new uh, consensus amongst the West. Were you? Do you want to talk a bit about, about what you took from the, from the polls of Europeans and Americans and what you found the most striking about them? Yeah, so this is, I'm glad to have done this with ECFR. And what is really clear is that a year ago, you could say that a lot of Europeans were very hesitant and actually the Atlantic was potentially quite wide. And what has happened is that the Europeans have come much closer to the Americans in believing that the desirable outcome of the war is that Ukraine should regain all its territory even if it means a longer war or more Ukrainians being killed and displaced. That's how we formulated the EU 9, 38%, Britain 44%, the US 
34%. So there's a real unity there. And if one asks why that is, I think it's partly because of what I've just seen in Kiev, which is this incredible self-confidence, spirit, courage, uh, a conviction that they not only have been winning, but can go on winning. And it's not only their achievements on the ground, in particular, I think, the Kherson initiative and getting back large chunks of territory, but the absolutely brilliant way in which not just Zelensky, but the whole Ukrainian nation, in a way, has told their story. So this is quite striking. I would say two other things. Uh, One is that where does this leave the notion of European strategic autonomy, so beloved of uh, Emmanuel Macron? Because we've all realized that actually our security, when push comes to shove, depends on the United States. So it's been a Euro-Atlantic moment. Um, uh, And... um, I forgot the other one. It's all right. There's been plenty of time for more things. Um, You've already edited that one out. Do you want to follow up with that? Uh, And it it is really to follow because, uh, as you remember, uh, we have been doing a similar poll in the spring where basically you can see that much more Europeans, particularly in Western Europe, were saying, listen, the most important is the war to stop. And we understand basically now better when we see the change of the opinion, what was behind this answer. And this was not any type of a sympathy for Russia. From the very first moment the war started, it was obvious that Europeans basically perceived that this is totally unacceptable. The problem was, a year ago, they didn't believe that Ukraine can make it. And from this point of view, the major factors, in my view, two factors that explain the shift in the European public opinion. One is exactly what Tim said. This was the victories of the Ukrainian army in the autumn, which basically make many Europeans to change their opinion. And the second was that a huge kind of a nightmare scenario and dystopian views were created about uh, Putin's winter. And lesson confidence comes from success. Of course, there was high level of prices of energy, there was inflation, uh, but this was not the disastrous <laughs> uh, winter. Europeans understood that basically they can make it. And this level of self-confidence went in the polls. The other thing that made me very strong impression on the polls was that before the divide between certain East European countries, let's put it frontline countries, because it's not simply Eastern Europe. It's not East versus West. To be honest, some of the most skeptical. We found back in, in the spring. That yeah, the this was Romania. For example, like Romania Germany, looks like Italy, Romania looks like yeah, Italy, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and basically not like the Baltic republics of Poland right. and Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Hungary. When it comes to the public opinion, are not the greatest supporters uh, of Ukraine in Europe. But when it comes to the critical countries, I mean Germany, France, Poland, the big countries, you see the convergence that was not there a year ago. So in a certain way. The difference between German and Polish public opinion on the war has been breached in the way that very few people expected. Uh, and uh, this is something which for me is kind of an interesting and new because it is one thing to have a unity on the level of governments. It's totally different to see to what extent behind this unity, uh, basically governments managed to convince their public opinions that this is the way to go. Yeah, think, except, except that I cannot, I'm not sure. And certainly in the case of Germany, I think it's almost the other way around. I think it's public opinions persuading their governments mm-hmm. more than governments persuading. In other words, this is a very rare example where you really have a bottom-up yeah. pressure from mm-hmm. public opinion. And, you know, if you look at Poland and Germany, I mean, the Law and Justice Party in Poland is, is trying to win the election this autumn 
on an anti-German campaign. Every evening there's furious anti-German propaganda in state TV, but at the same time, as you say, actually public opinions are much closer than, say, Poland to, to Hungary. So actually the sort of the Euro-Atlantic, the sense of a Euro-Atlantic community, a notion, by the way, born after 1989, is now back very strongly indeed. I think that's one of the other really interesting things that this poll shows is the extent to which, you know, though you have a kind of outrider of, Ang- of the Anglosphere, so the UK and the US more committed to regaining the whole of Ukrainian territory than uh, most EU countries are, and they're more hostile to Russia, etc. But the gap between them has shrunk over, over the last period of time. And that, I think, is one of the other explanations for, for what's happened in Europe. That, the, you know, before the war started, all the talk was, you know, first about, you know, out of area or out of business for NATO. And then it was about the pivot to Asia. And uh, Europeans felt that they were gradually disappearing from the mind of Americans. And Trump obviously was the high point of, of European provincialization in the American mind. So the Americans coming back in has given Europeans a, a sense of their kind of centrality to the world, which I think has also uh, maybe this creates a bit of a bridge with the, the next thing, I think has helped to, to grow this gulf between a West that's increasingly happy talking to itself very, very comfortable in formats like the G7 and NATO, where there are no dissenting voices, increasingly uninterested in the way that this conflict looks to the rest of the world, because it is, for them, an existential conflict in a way that that it isn't for for many of the people outside of the West. So before we go to that, can I just say one thing quickly, Mark, which is, you know, speaking of the Munich Security Conference, last year's Munich Security Conference, you had NATO and EU literally standing shoulder to shoulder on the stage. Jens Stoltenberg and Ursula von der Leyen were this close. And one thing, one effect of this war, it's not just that NATO has come back, but NATO and the EU are closer than ever before. And they're becoming, there's a total overlap. Finland and Sweden joining. Exactly. If you join one, you join the other sooner or later. They're the two strong arms of the West. And what's interesting in our polling is that countries outside the West See it that way too. I mean, for many of them, there's no real big difference between Europe and the United States. It's all the West, which, by the way, poses a question for us as the European Council on Foreign Relations, since we're trying to create a more coherent, stronger European foreign policy. But this was interesting because year ago, the very name West was not going to be so much present in our discussions. It was all West. We're going to talk about the US. <laughs> We're going to talk about the EU and so on. And I do believe this is happening. And it is not simply exactly what we are discussing that we see a kind of merging of positions. This is how the others, for good or bad, yeah. perceive us. And this is also a new reality that was a result of the war. It's very interesting that, that Olaf Scholz quoted Putin talking about the global West um, in his speech at the Munich Security Conference. Yeah showing that this is something which everyone agrees on, whatever side of the war they're, they're on. You also, Olaf Scholz, every second phrase is European sovereignty, and yet I'm not going to send a single type of weapon unless the United States are going to send them at the same time. So let's maybe use this to sort of pivot into... So the first part is both about this convergence and particularly a convergence around quite a hawkish stance. We haven't actually talked about some of the policy implications of it, but our poll shows 
you know, that not only do people, large majorities of people see Russia as a, as a rival, but they're also very keen to decouple, including on energy policy. And you have majorities everywhere that would like to end any consumption of Russian oil and gas. And they see that as more important than, than keeping supplies uninterrupted. But at the same time, the rest of the world seems to be going in the opposite direction. So the number of people who just want the war to end as quickly as possible is a plurality in all of the non-Western countries, majority in some countries, but it's at least the plurality in China, in India, in Turkey, as well as in, in Russia. And that is a very striking gulf, but maybe even more striking are some of the underlying things which might have taken the rest of the world there. And I think they are divisions about how people see the, the world around Ukraine uh, as much as what's actually going on in the battlefield in Ukraine. I don't know if one of you wants to, to, to start yeah. talking about that. I'll start because for me the most interesting story is that when the war started, one of the most striking things was that 143 countries in the General Assembly of the United Nations decided to condemn Russia, which is a member of the Security Council. So this is not an easy to have this majority. And you have this famous uh, statement of the Kenyan ambassador who said, listen, we Africans understand it perfectly well because it is a kind of a anti-imperial war that we all experience. And then uh, after out of these 430, around 50, joined the sanctions of the uh, US. Well under 50, and, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like more like 30, less than 35. Or 35, but in a certain way. And <laughs> then basically the major explanation was, okay, countries condemned, they have economic interests, they're doing this and that. And then this is interesting about this poll, because this poll is not polling the position of governments. It is polling where the public stands. And what we see in the polling, and which was the most shocking and interesting for me, was the following. That people outside of Europe believe that war should stop as soon as possible, to be honest, is not something that strikes me. <laughs> because normally when you're talking about a war which is far from home, uh, what you're interested in, normally interested is for the war to stop. And if people are going to poll us how what we want to happen in Ethiopia or wars that you're not following on this level, this is going to happen. But then comes the really striking uh, results. And we're talking about China, we're talking about India, we're talking about Turkey. After one year of a brutal aggression, none of these countries, you have a plurality that has in negative way changed their view on Russia. And secondly, they also don't perceive Russia being weaker than it was before. While for the Europeans, it was quite obvious that Russia's special operation failed, that there is a war and Russia is not doing well in this war. And for me, the problem was what this explanation comes from. In after 9-11 in the United States, the question was, why do they hate us? In the case of one year after the Russia's war is why they do not hate them. Uh, and this is a moral issue, which has nothing to do with the sanctions or joining sanctions and so on. And I'm going to suggest four kind of uh, uh, explanations of this. One paradoxically, of course, one is the best known and it has to do with the post-colonial mind, which is very much not structured around democracy versus authoritarianism, but that is a kind of a geographical resentment which I heard because uh, Tim was in, uh, uh, Tim was in uh, Ukraine, I was in Latin America. This was this resentment that when something happens in Europe, it's always global, but when it happens out of Europe, it is not. So this was kind of questioning the centrality of the European continent. The second, which uh, also happened, is because Putin's narrative 
that this is the war between the West and Russia, has prevailed. Listen, the fact that uh, Russians are not doing well is not a striking fact if you believe that they are not fighting Ukrainians whom they are fighting, but if they are fighting West. So suddenly they're out of Kherson. But if you believe, and of course the delivery of weapons make it easier for the way, that this is whom they are fighting, people are not struck. But my last argument is much more counterintuitive. Paradoxically, one of the reasons Russia is not hunted, uh, is not hated, is that Russia stopped to be a global superpower. In a certain way, this is the problem of the regional powers. They hate it only in their region, because the imperial project is regional projects. If you look at Wagner in Africa, which is very visible, and compare with the Soviet present in the 1970s and 80s, in 1970s and 80s, Soviet Union was in Africa to stir revolutions, to transform, to change. And Wagner is a security provider, very special one, very special type of, but it is not to change anything. So Funnily enough, for the Africans, for Indians, for Chinese, Russia became part of their balance of power story exactly because they are not a global superpower anymore. Let's unpack that a bit, Ivan, because we found, I mean, there are quite a few really interesting findings which back up your kind of analysis. One of them is about this whole question about what divides the world. And we know that President Biden has tried to frame this as a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. And that's something that we did poll and we found several reasons why that frame doesn't seem to be landing with much of the rest of the world, even though most Americans actually, the, the biggest group of Americans, when you ask them why America's fighting the war, thought that that was the, the reason to support Ukraine as a democracy. Yeah, so I find this completely fascinating and it goes against the argument I made 20 years ago in a book called Free World, the argument of which was we have to go beyond the future of the West lies in going beyond the West to a wider community of democracies. And I'm very attached to that notion. And in substance, I think there's some truth in it. What we found is that it has zero traction in China, India, Turkey, and Russia. The findings, we, we asked, I think, a really interesting question. Which of the following countries comes closest to having a real democracy? Absolutely, amazingly, 77% of those asked in China says China comes closest to having a real democracy. India, perhaps less surprising, 57%, but still quite strong. It is the world's largest democracy. But even Turkey and even Russia, Russia. Uh, 36%, 20 but, but I mean, it's the largest it's lower, single... but it's the largest... It's, 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 and, 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 and so everybody thinks they have democracy. The language of democracy is universal, and therefore this simply doesn't have traction. Then, and I've tried this myself, making the argument, say, to Indians, don't you realize this is a war of national liberation against a war of recolonization prosecuted by the Russian Raj, right? Again, coming from us, it has virtually no traction because they are saying to themselves, well, you guys have been you know, lording it over us in colonial projects for 600 years, 200 years of Western hegemony, and then you turn around and appeal to us to join in an anti-colonial war of national liberation. So, you know, the interesting question is what argument does actually have traction for these countries and who is credible in making that argument? So fascinating to me was I, I shared some of these results with friends in Kiev. They're all totally aware of the problem. And they themselves are trying to find. And they say, well, actually, 
when we try and make the anti-colonial argument, it has a bit more traction. It becomes a little bit more credible. But even so, the notion that colonialism is something that Euro- Europeans do to other Europeans, white people to other white people, is very, very hard f- for them to, 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 to accept. So I think um, we're still in search of those arguments. And one other point, if I may, the notion, people talk about this as a problem of the global south, Right. The very framing of it as the global south is part of the problem, yeah. right? It's as if there's this world out there which we used to colonize and now has to be won over to our side because what is so fascinating is what we find here is that these countries don't see themselves as the global south in any way, shape or form. They see themselves as great powers. So that's the, the, the kind of next thing. Because I think what we described there is one... Two very powerful reasons why this democracy versus autocracy thing doesn't work. One is obviously that everyone thinks they're democratic, so it's not a very good dividing line. Secondly, when you ask people why the West is supporting Ukraine, most people in most countries don't think it's about defending democracy. Some think it's about our own security, but quite a lot also think it's just about Western hegemony. That's um, uh, But maybe there's an even more fundamental reason for this, which is when we started asking people about what kind of world they lived in. And there, there was a huge gulf between the Euro-Atlantic response and the rest of the world response. So the, the mo- we gave people a bunch of different options, asking them whether we live in a, a bipolar world or split between a US-led bloc and a Chinese bloc, whether we live in a multipolar world where there are different centres of power, whether we, we live in a Chinese-led world, or a US-led world. You know, you have different answers in all of the different countries, but by and large, most people in the West thought that we lived in this bipolar world. And most people in other countries thought that actually we lived in a multipolar world. So we have these two prisms, one which is about polarisation into democracy and autocracy, and the other was about fragmentation, where lots of people have different ideas about where they should be going and they don't want to be part of these kind of blocks. And that's, I think, maybe the biggest goal. Because if your mindset is of living in a bipolar world, then you look at India and Turkey and all these other countries as swing states and you work out how do you get them to swing between the different blocks. But if you look at the world from one of those states, think of yourself as a newly sovereign country that wants to set its own path and that has different options. And I think it goes a bit into what you were saying, Ivan, at the very beginning. But I think it's worth looking at how, because, you know, I think where we want to end is, is what what this means for Western policy going forward, particularly for European policy and what kind of lessons we could take from it. But that's maybe one of the most fundamental ones. This is kind of quite unbridgeable gulf between how we think about the world and therefore think about the role of these other powers and how they think about themselves. And that leads to a lot of frustrations, what you were saying, Tim, about talking to them as the global South or as kind of swing states they need to be brought over to our side. The very fact of asking the question like that irritates and annoys and actually pushes them away from us. Exactly, because what you see, and I'm going to give you an example of this, when we talk about the world order, for us it's European order, because in a very important way, in the, ni- the end of the 19th century, European order and world order were the same for the simple reasons that the world was European empires. And even during the Cold War, when the Soviet Union and the United States were not typically European powers, Europe was what, what 
everything was about. Now the funny story is that the Russians themselves are not seeing this as a bipolar, which is, to be honest, you should have a lot of imagination on this level of confrontation, because even they are making the distinctions between European order, which is obviously confrontational, Cold War is back in Europe, but nowhere else. And I do believe this is the major challenge, and this is going to be the problem, and in a certain way, Ukrainians cannot do it on themselves, and nobody can do it in themselves, because the post-colonial and the Cold War had been together, and there was a very complex interplay during the whole Cold War, but Cold War managed to discipline also the imagination of the third world back then, because it was universalist ideologies. So now what they see is fragmentation. And this fragmentation is making people to fear or even not to fear what they're seeing. When you see Indian results, India believes that they're allies and friends of everybody because yeah. suddenly, at the end of the day, they're on the top table. So by being a great power and achieving to be a great power, they already like the world. <laughs> that is it now. So English Beck wrote this famous book about democracy without enemies, which was Germany, but it's now India. Yes, India is absolutely amazing. We, we like everybody, you, even Britain okay. and Russia. Yes, less Chinese than others. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I just to connect this back to our, our project. So we do every month we do webinars with students from all these countries um, across fifteen time zones, six a.m. in Stanford, ten p.m. in China, in Beijing. It's absolutely fascinating. But one of the things we find is that while the Turks and Russians are really interested in Europe, as they always have been, half of them think they're part of it, you know, that's, it's an argument, internal argument, the Chinese and Indians are much more interested in each other than they are in us. And that's very difficult for us to accept. So there's a kind of cultural intellectual enterprise of decentering, of realizing that they're not that interested in Europe, except for fashion and football and maybe film. But everything else, they're much more interested in each other. And so what that leads us to is a world as they see it, which is simply a world of great powers, or if you like, empires with different traditions. And we're going to be with you on this issue because it suits our interests and we're going to be against you on, on that issue. And I think that's, in a way, the beginning of wisdom, perhaps, for us, is to recognize that that's the world we're in. Uh, very much to go on this. I remember when I was a student in Bulgaria in the 1980s, uh, we had two sentences on the Russian-Japanese War of 1905. It was just a preparation for the Bolshevik Revolution. <laughs> mm. And then, after that starting training, I understood that this war was perceived as a shattering event in the imagination of many anti-colonial yeah. leaders of the 20th century. It was the first war. Yeah, this was the first war in which the white empire yeah. had been defeated. Yeah, uh, And this is the story, because now we can have kind of the upside down. We see, in my view, very, with very good reasons based on the European history, what is happening in Ukraine as critically important for the world. But they look at the war in the way I was looking to the Russian-Japanese war. It is the war that you don't understand why it's so important for the others, because it's not their world. Because they started to believe that their own things matter much more because this is here and there. And for me, this is the important story out of this public opinion polls, because polls change. And of course, people have here and there. But we know that there is no campaign done by Ukraine or by the United States or by the European Union that is going to change this basic fact that they see the world not simply Ukraine or Russia differently. And I do believe this is, uh, this is what is probably in policy terms the most relevant thing that we can offer.
because I think that's maybe where we should sort of end as well. But I, I think uh, for me, that's one of the, the most fundamental things as well, that in lots of European countries, this has been framed as a battle of narratives and it's about Russian misinformation and Russian narratives taking hold in all sorts of other parts of the world. And we need to counter that battle of narratives and listening to, to speeches, whether it's in Davos or in the, in the Munich Security Conference or other places, Lots of talk by Western leaders about how we need to get out there and make the case in the global south to counter this battle of narratives. And looking at these results, what it looks like is just a difference of perspectives rather than the narratives. The lived experience, the relative importance of these things is so fundamentally different that no propaganda or narratives are going to change that. And it's not that people are particularly pro-Russian or in favour of countries being invaded. It's just that they think a lot of this stuff's going on. Yeah. There is a famous Polish <laughs> saying, not my circus, not my minds. <laughs> this is other people's war. And I do believe this is the most difficult thing to yeah. change. For them, it was not this particularly other important. People's war. Yeah. And I do believe this is For the them, most... it's not a particularly important tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I do just want to say at the end, having just spent a week in Ukraine, that But for us, it's absolutely existential. And so the fact that they see it so differently, and by the way, they're the people who have the old Warsaw Pact ammunition, which Ukraine is running out of, is an immediate policy problem. No, it's a huge huge challenge. But that's why it's such a fundamental problem, that it is an existential thing for us and that this gulf is real. Yeah. Um, By the way, I think historians are miles ahead of policymakers. I mean, we've already globalized the writing of history. Rana Mitter has written about the Second World War as an Asian experience. Richard Overy has written a fantastic book about the global Second World War, which doesn't start in 1939 at all. So maybe, maybe the politicians have to catch up with the historians. But politicians should not try to become historians because we saw one of them in July 2021, who decided basically to rewrite history, writing a student essay on Russians and Ukrainians being the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one thing worse than no history, and that's bad history. <laughs> okay, well, I think that seems like a, a good place to end this discussion. If you're interested in the uh, in the poll, you should go to our website at dcfr.eu. Um, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, but uh, it's our bookshelf segment. On my bookshelf, I haven't got that far yet, but what I have read has been absolutely incredible is Homelands, new personal, mending of the personal, the political, trying to retell the European story in an extremely vivid way at a moment which is incredibly poignant and which brings out a lot of the existential nature that we talked about. So that's uh, my recommendation. Tim, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Maybe you can come back, actually, and talk about Homelands on the future uh, podcast. I'd be happy, happy to do that, partly because, I mean, a lot of this is history we, all the three of us, have shared together. It's part of, you know, all, all our life stories. Um, Sehi Plochi, uh, a book of essays on Ukrainian history called The Front Line, a great Ukrainian historian now at Harvard. Uh, that's on my bookshelf because it shows you that the Ukrainians have been understanding their struggle as a story of decolonization for more than a hundred years. And it's only us who are just waking up to it. Ivan, what's on your bookshelf? Yeah, listen, big student of Tim Gartanesh, obviously. His book is not on my shelf, but on my bedroom. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm reading also an interesting novel because, uh, as I told you, I was in Latin America and Vasquez's book, The Shape of the Ruins, made a very 
a strong impression on me because what else we think in this survey is that we should try to make distinctions between the way the Cold War experience shapes certain type of imagination and basically how this post-colonial experience that. By the way, both of them being together. Uh, and this is a this is a great it's a great novel. So if somebody is in a novel reading after reading Tim, you should read Vasquez. <laughs> okay, well that brings us to the end of our time today. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do head to whatever platform you have gone to download us from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five star rating because it will help bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Timothy Gartanash, Ivan Krastev, and myself, Mark Leonard, this is goodbye.